Welcome to the Todd DeVoe Show, exploring the best ideas and lessons for leaders. Good morning, good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you are at in this fine world. And I'm trying to grow, trying to grow goatee or, or something. I'm not sure if I like it or not. So uh, let me know in the comments if you think I should keep doing it or, or shave it off. Anyway, uh, good morning, everybody. It's, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful um, fall uh, morning here in Southern California. And we're here to talk about, well, some of the challenges that we have in mass care and what technologies that we can use um, to, to help you uh, go through that process. And, you know, as we look towards winter weather, uh, we have a weather storm issue uh, coming out this way. We just had a huge um, blizzard in Buffalo, uh, my, or the, the place where I was uh, uh, born, uh, go Buffalo Bills. And uh, so we got that stuff going on. And so we always have to think, what happens if we need to have mass care? And today I have an expert in mass care with us, Vincent, to join the program. Hi, good morning, Todd. How are you? Good morning. You have a nice, you have some nice facial hair going on there. Well, been working on it a long time. Yeah. Uh, so I'm saying, so my, mine's a little lacking, so. You'll get there. <laughs> so Vincent, how, how did you get, first, how did you get the mask here? Because I always ask that question when I meet new emergency managers or emergency managers new to me, is how do we fall into this uh, or get into this program? And I know you have a, an extensive background in other things other than mask care. Yeah, no, it's uh it's a good question. You know, sometimes um sometimes life kind of directs you rather than you directing life, right? And um so one of the first opportunities I had after a, a long wildland firefighting career was to while while I, I returned to graduate school and uh was working on a master's in public administration. And during that time, uh a position opened up with the American Red Cross. Um and so as I was learning uh, mat, uh, 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 emergency management. I was also involved in mass care uh, at a very local level, a very direct service delivery level, um, literally driving out to people's homes who had just experienced a fire and arranging to ensure that they had some emergency assistance and some shelter and, and food and water and all the necessities they needed to you know, overcome what was for them an absolutely disastrous day. Um, and, and that kind of stuck with me. Um, after that, I, I joined local emergency management at the county level for many years uh, until an op- opportunity opened up um, with the state of Oregon at the Department of Human Services, where I'm at now. Uh, they started a, an office of resilience and emergency management. And that office is now, in, is now the, the emergency support function six mass care lead for the state of Oregon. And of course, it's a it's it's very different than when I was with the Red Cross, where I was very local. Now we're looking at programmatic ways, uh, systematic ways to support local support that local work. Um, and it's it's quite a challenge. Uh, but uh, the journey has been um, fraught with experience. That's for sure. So. On, on the mass care front, I want to kind of talk globally here for a few minutes, and then we'll get down into some of the cool stuff that you're that you guys are doing. Um, you know, I think of you know, those large shelters that were, or even spontaneous shelters that have been opened up in in you know that made the media, such as like um, 
you know, with Katrina and the Superdome, which wasn't really supposed to happen, but it did. Um, things like that, where it just seems chaotic um, and out of control. To like here where I'm at, where we've opened shelters and you have a population of maybe two people that show up to, to a shelter. Um, how, how do you balance those those two sides where you have thousands of people showing up to just a couple? Well, I, I Todd, I really appreciate that question because boy, you have very quickly gotten right at the heart of the problem. Um, and that problem is one we experience in Oregon in, in quite a dramatic way. So um, some of the day-to-day emergencies we see um, are very small uh, when we're talking from the state level, right? So in a, a fire at an apartment complex, and we may have 28 people to 30 or 50 people affected, but only one or two show up to a shelter. Um, they tend, people of course, tend to find a uh, room with friends and family. Um, they disperse. Sometimes they have their own resources and can get themselves into hotels. Um, and the shelter population, though we're prepared to handle 50 people, we get into a situation where, like you indicated, one or two show up. The level of flexibility required to handle that is very important, but, but we always have to account for the possibility that we may have to deal with all 50 of the people affected by that disaster. At a local level, that's very, very difficult uh, because resources at the county level um, are usually pretty uh, slim when considering mass care. But we do try very hard to let the locals lead on the decisions and we come in uh, in support. But the other part of that question I want to get to is when we consider this as a scenario-based issue, particularly around what here in Oregon we have as our largest forecast um, disaster. Uh, it's really a catastrophe. The, the, the Cascadia subduction zone earthquake and its attendant tsunami and landslides and many other impacts that, that will happen. And when we start talking about uh, um, scenarios at that scale, um, you can very quickly start to worry that can we even prepare for something that large and, and what numbers do we expect? And, and, and really, how do we get our head around uh, assessing and reestablishing lifelines so that we can uh, get people into recovery safely and back to their communities? Um, and providing mass care in that setting is in, an extremely difficult and, and is, our biggest, um, is our biggest effort. So... One quick note, uh, again, to, to address your question, is the, the office that I work for, uh, the Oregon Office of Resilience and Emergency Management, was born from the 2020 wildfires that mm. um, saw evacuations of thousands of people and the mass care sheltering of thousands of people. There really was a, a very intense need to uh, provide uh, those services and emergency assistance to, to, to um, residents and and well, anyone who needed it in Oregon. And at the time, our office really wasn't staffed to handle that level of uh, complexity. And as a result, we went from, I think, about one and a half FTE to about, we're now currently at 48 staff, uh, full-time staff, with the focus of preparing for a Cascadia-level event. So to answer your question directly, 
we hope that we're preparing to be able to handle those small scale incidents at whatever level they need, even if only a fraction of those people come to shelter and and get ourselves ready to handle a an event that's the biggest we can imagine. Um, of course, that that high level is the is the real bar. It'll be some uh, I don't know if we ever fully get ready for it, but right. We're- yeah, it's it's you, you, you're as ready as you can be, right? That's that's the way you yeah. can be. So, so with that, I mean, I know there's technologies that you're using um, specifically. I know you guys are using Buffalo Computer Graphics DLAN. Um, how does that integrate into how you use your for your planning and and how you manage those large shelters? Yeah, yeah. The 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 first the first biggest lesson from 2020 was that we had was that whiteboards and pieces of paper on the walls of a temporary office. Um, it worked as well as we could make it work, but it didn't provide us. We, we have to have force multiplier and we've got to depend on technology to do that for us. We actually use two uh, Buffalo computer graphics um, products. We use the DLAN system, which is our centerpiece of technology. That is the that is the system around which all of our operations are gathered and are coordinated. And then we also use the enhanced shelter module, which they've provided for us. And that helps us do emergency registration at our shelter locations when we're there in support. Um, <clears throat> so, but it has to be said that without the DLAN system um, in place, we, uh, while we have alternate, of course, have the alter, alternatives of going to paper and pencil type work, um, we invest a lot of money to ensure that our DLAN system is always accessible to field staff and to ourselves. And that includes additional technologies that allow us to keep DLAN live so that we can have visibility at all times. Um, and that's also true. That's also being planned for the largest scale event. So if you think about what kind of commitment we're making to that DLAN system, it means we really like it. We have to have that available when when a catastrophic incident occurs, and so we're investing heavily in the hardware necessary to keep that keep that live. Um, it's really Im- important for us. Um, and if I can, Todd, if I can make a quick a quick offshoot of that point, um, one of the things I've noticed in the last uh, fifteen years in emergency management is that where we began in emergency management was very much where uh, fire uh, discipline, right? wildland fire discipline began. And that is to create, to create processes, procedures around discrete incidents. A fire occurs, we ramp up the response, we stabilize the incident, we go into transition and demobilization, mm-hmm. and then we hand it back off and we're done. And we've accomplished one incident. What we're noticing on the human service delivery side and on the mass care side is that things are changing and that we don't have, we can't say specifically that we only deal in discrete incidents. A thing occurs in Oregon, we respond to it, and then the thing goes into recovery and we're done. It doesn't work. It doesn't work like that, especially on the mass care side. We end up with a spectrum of response. And there's so many of them that they overlie each other. And so that what we end up with is a series of discrete incidents that are coupled together because recovery lasts long enough 
and because there are so many daily operations that go into it that we are literally constantly in some type of response. Our Joint Department Operations Center never closes. It's open 24 hours, seven, and it's always got work to do. Right. So, the, so the other aspect of using the DLAN system is to coordinate that level of work. And it's a compliment to BCG that they created a system that, though derived from these discrete incidents that we have, uh, responding to discrete incidents, it's managed to be flexible enough to handle all of our daily work at the same time. And we, we really do use it that way. Um, um, all of our staff are connected to it. We even brief to the governor utilizing DLAN status boards that we put up on the screen and work our way through the data that, or whatever data the governor would like to see. So uh, it's become absolutely integral to our operations and has really connected what were once very disparate things into a, a one one cogent um, uh, visualization and analysis. So, so when you think of technology in general, right? Like things that are helping, you know, and you said earlier that, you know, working on whiteboards and papers on the wall um, just doesn't work anymore. And, and I think one thing that COVID has taught us, and I was actually talking and kind of go back a little bit. Um, I had an interview um, with uh the, the emergency manager for the city of Inglewood. And he, he, before that um, he was at Torrance and they had some issues. And if you guys listen to this, the episode is pretty interesting. Um, and he, he started using um, Slack to be able to communicate because they went decentralized on their, their EOC because of COVID. Um, and so then he had to actually look for another system that was, better than that but it, it worked for the short term um is technology and i ask this question to my students all the time right um is technology more important to emergency management today and then if it is what do we do if technology if something fails like the internet goes down or something like that? yeah it's it's so good it's such a good question the I think my, I think my, look, I'm a, I'm a classist. I'm a, I'm a classical ICS guy, right? I mean, I'm used to, I, I got my, I cut my teeth in an engine with uh, ICS forms and writing them out when you roll up to a scene, ordering resources through paper and a radio in your hand. And, and look, those systems work. I mean, they do. The, the, it, the, the way those were designed really did, do, does great work. But I think the problem we have and, 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 I think every field, every discipline can say the same thing is that we're not resourced to do our ideal work. We don't have everything we want, all of the staff or all of the gear to do all the things we need to do. Mm. So we look for ways to find efficiencies and technology makes those efficiencies really happen in serious ways. Now, I wouldn't claim that it could fix all of the problems or all of the needs that uh, emergency managers might face, but boy, it sure goes a long way to handling some of the confusion that can be created and make time more efficient and make our ability to track information much clearer. It also does a, you know, and, and again, I, I have to point to the DLAN system that we utilize. It does an excellent job helping us make the case to our executive leadership that we need more resources. And so it 
it so at once it empowers it drives the the investment justification the need for more resources but it also helps us be more efficient at the same time and and but it, the vulnerability is exactly what you pointed out it's an achilles heel if we were to lose um connectivity we can still do some of the work in, as a as local or individual work stations but of course, it doesn't have the power it has when you're connected, especially with our field units. And that's the part where, where we, you know, our leadership is recognized early on. What we need to do is ensure that we have robust, that we maintain robust communications. And I swear in every exercise, and I know you know you've felt this way too. I'm pretty sure in every after action review of every exercise or actual occurrence I've ever been in, the very first number one issue is communications. It's, it's just always, right? I mean, it's, it's so cliche to say anymore. Like, hey, what are we going to talk about communications? <laughs> I, I, I joke and say that let's just, just be like there already. Like, you yeah, just to... like have it filled out, ready to go. <laughs> you want to talk about other things, not talk about that for now. But so, so, so this team has really tried to predicate itself off on getting some of these systems in place literally to ensure that our DLAN system can run all the time. So we have, we purchased 10 um, pod runners or sat runners from uh, rescue 42 up there in, in Chico. Um, they've done a great job cre- helping us create field uh, uh, to supply a network in the field um, ad hoc networks when we need them. We've deployed those all over the state. Um, we hope to have more, uh, we've been noticing, we, we kept our eye, kept a weather eye on what's going on with Starlink, because mm. um, if that uh, business model were to stabilize to the point where, where we have real de- dependability, then we would, of course, want to gravitate that way too. All, all in an effort to maintain that center point of control, command and control, uh, which, we, which we've um, decided would be uh, DLAN. Um, so... Yeah, man, that's the that's the Achilles heel. That's the strategy. We can go to paper and pencil. We always maintain that those standard operating procedures where we have to divert. But uh, but to be really as powerful as we can be with forty eight personnel, we 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 rely on the technology to do a lot of the lifting for us. No, absolutely, and and I, and I think that's important for us to realize that you know we are we are in a new era. Right. And I don't even know if it's new. Right. And I, I think about my, my kids, you know, and I, I have two kids that are 10 years apart and um, my, my son, who's now 20, um, he, he grew up with the game, you know, he grew up with consoles and TV and, you know, iPad stuff like this, but it wasn't as prevalent necessarily when he was little, my daughter who's 10, that's all she knows. Right. And her school is, is based upon that technology how to use iPad, you know, they all have iPads at her grade school to do her homework and everything is done that way. And so they're native to, to technology. And, you know, those of us that are, are at the end of our careers, I suppose, I don't necessarily want to say about the end of my career, but definitely on the, on the older side of things, you know, the, the gray and the beards or whatever, um, you know, we have to make sure that we're embracing technology and not stopping the new generation come behind us from getting this. And I've seen this happen a few times um, with some of my students that the frustration is like, yeah, I bring this idea, you know, to the city that I'm working for, but they don't want to invest in that. Um, and so, 
they get. So how do you, what would you say to those cities out there, those counties and those states that are sitting on the edge of whether they want to invest in, in technology or not? Oh, that it's the, there's no, there's no, in my opinion, there's no potential future where we're not using these um, features. It is, it is the path. You know, I, I, I hesitate to make this analogy because I don't want to make the, to make this point comic, but you know, at, at one point we just expect there to be roads right here where I am having a highway between Astoria and Portland, Oregon is like, it's got to be there. It's got to be there, but we never imagine a time where we won't fix the road if it's broken. it's immediate, right? We go right to the, we go right to the source of the problem. We clear the landslide because the landslides occur all the time. We clear it up. We get the road back in order and we continue that communication back and forth to Portland. This is the, I don't see this as any different. It's investing in your public works. It's investing in your uh, things that are now the standard procedure for how we, we work, which is to include these technologies. So, um, it, it's either do it's either do it soon or it's do it later, but there is no not go and get this technology. It, it's going to be part of uh, how we how we uh, run these uh, emergency response systems. And um, you know, I had the I had the unfortunate circumstance to lose internet um, earlier uh, this week. It came on, by the way, just a few minutes before your show started. And <laughs> go figure. And, but that was okay because we've put in place multiple redundant systems. And so what I had as a backup was a first net um, run hotspot. So all this week, though I didn't have internet and our team all works remote. I did have the tech, we did invest in the technologies early to ensure that we could still get up onto the DLAMP platform or in this case onto your show and continue to work seamlessly. That kind of investment, though, it seems like a major uh, capital commitment early, pays dividends all the way through its lifespan. It, it, it always will make things more efficient. It'll help you get the information more quickly that a city or a county commission may need to decide on a declaration. The faster you make your declaration, the more quickly you're aligning uh, resources from the state and potentially even the federal government um, and getting your recovery back online, which has massive, of course, massive economic circumstances. It's just always best for any city or or county, any local government to uh, highlight the, the, the acquisition of this kind of system um, because, you know, th- there's been so many examples of long, long and drawn out recoveries that really cost a, yeah. a jurisdiction uh, quite, quite severely. So, so bring the conversation back, back to mass, mass care and sheltering. Um, what are the challenges that you have? Like say the top five challenges that you have when you're planning for preparing for and, and, you, you know, going through those drills and exercises where you see hiccups and whatnot for that. What are those top five challenges that you've come across? Yeah, number one for certain is um, reunification as a function of mass care. In uh, the state's comprehensive emergency management plan, reunification, and they describe it as family reunification, but reunification is assigned to ESF-6. 
So it's the responsibility of um, the Oregon Department of Human Services to reconnect people after a disaster. That work, as you can imagine, if there are, if in the madness of a wildfire or an earthquake, right, and all of the the drama and the the very very quick decisions that need to be made, um, in all that chaos, we have got to find a way to create some order, and that order requires we can't do that with pencil and paper, literally impossible. Um, the only way we can do it is through systems that help us register uh, survivors um, in locations where we can provide those mass care services and then connect family members who may be in another one of those shelters somewhere distant. That's so true, right? In a metro area like Portland, where people uh, live on the outskirts and come into town and then we have an earthquake, bridges have collapsed and they can't get back. Being able to provide that level of connectivity is the absolute number one challenge and is um, is very difficult to do. Um, the other the other thing we struggle with is assessing um, our assessing the impacts post um, disaster. Um, again, very hard to do in an organized way. We can put observers on the ground and they can take in information, but if we don't have a central clearinghouse for that information, the people needing to make the decisions about resource application don't know where to go. So um, that's that's also a big deal, and and we are. We're working diligently to create good plans for our field staff to help us understand the situation in real time. We talked about communications. I got to put that in the top five because, and I won't, I promise you, I won't talk about it too much because yeah, <laughs> communications, but, but we go through a whole panoply and, and we've highlighted that for a while. We're feeling pretty good about where we're at. We have radio systems. We've got satellite systems. We've got uh, cellular systems. We've got our standards. So, uh, we've gone through the um, through the pace plan for communications, and we've tried to insert resources to, to, for every one of those. Um, <clears throat> one of the other big ones is the provision of that evacuation support. Now, this is a very complicated topic. It's part of our mission to provide mass care services along the route of an evacuation. Again, we we tend to prepare for the biggest event, the the, the subduction zone earthquake. And when we imagine the coastline moving towards the east, um, where it may be safer, where there's fewer impacts, we have to create a, a, a linear evacuation system, right, along a route. And we have to provide mass care along the way. Yeah. That's, that level of uh, planning is, uh, has begun, I can say that. But boy, the extraordinary complexity and the interrelationships between other components of that kind of evacuation program, like how do we get supplies to these areas along the route? Um, those are very, very complex tasks. Uh, evacuation is very complex, even at a small scale level when we're talking about flooding and things like that. Uh, the provision of transportation for people to shelter areas and, and that kind of work. So evacuation is a, is a, whole, um, is a whole workshop topic that we're going to be approaching here in January. And then fifth is um, is is another one. This one's recently cropped up. It it it's it's probably the fifth on the list if I was uh, prioritizing it. And it's repatriation, mm. which has become a big topic for us uh, because again we're assigned to that work. But there's a lot, and and the challenge here is not the providing the mass care that we've 
we've gotten pretty good at the fundamentals, right? Identifying locations, uh, supplying with um, mass care equipment, food, water, other services, and then connecting people to the human services side of our work. Some of those things we we've been we're we're practiced at. I mean, there's always room for improvement, right? But we're we're better at that. The real hard part with repatriation is the intergovernmental relationships we need to form to do that work. I mean, in our plan, there's like 40 agencies that are involved in repatriation, and it goes all the way up to the to the State Department. So that gets enormously complex. Um, and we we're going to have, in fact, a a full time employee just working on repatriation for the next three years, just to get that plan um, firmed up and, and ready to go. So um, yeah, those are the big ones. But I, I do have to say that in those, in those uh, priorities, we, we do have room for, um, for, for improvement, for additional planning and for additional and, and for technology. And um yeah, we're we're making strides, but it's uh, it's a job of work. We're we're brand new. We're a baby organization, just two years old. So, well, that's exciting, though. I mean, like, and, and I'm glad that we're you know, say we the collective we you know the royal we, if you will, um, are thinking about that type of stuff because, you know, the idea, and and this kind of blew my mind a little bit there, the idea of having shelters along the line of the evacuation route is. Is, is amazing because I, I just think in the sense of when I was working for a small city, you know, uh, for tsunami evacuation, I'm thinking, okay, once they get past that, uh, you, you know, the danger zone, right? They're, they're outside of the tsunami hazard zone. Um, we'll figure out what to do with them after that. Right. And I never thought it, we, we talked about having care shelter centers and stuff like this, you know, walking with America, working with America Red Cross, but that takes a little bit to set up, you know, but I never thought about, oh man, if this was like a legit, like tsunami, which is taking out of homes, how to, you know, we're, we're saying, get it, go inland. Right. And jokingly go, just go to the mall and we'll, we'll figure out from there. Yeah. You know, you can walk around there for a little bit yeah. in your shelter. Right. Like, what do we do with them? And and having shelters along the line and, and all the way up is, it's an interesting concept. Yeah, it's, it's, um, we, we really do part of the problem with this big one, right? And, and the really big scenario kind of makes it a little hard for us to be prepared for a smaller scenario because it's so extraordinary that we have to take extraordinary measures. And those are unpracticed things. So, right. for example, you know, some of the estimates about the return for electric distribution on the coastal communities in Oregon post Cascadia subduction zone 9.0 is, is like two years. Right. Well, nobody, nobody's staying there for two years. Nobody's going to wait for their power to come on for two years. How would you power schools? Uh, families with kids need to get their kids in school. They need to go somewhere. They need to leave. Um, people are injured in the, the earthquake and tsunami. They have to come out right away. We imagine that a very large proportion a sizable proportion. Of course, these are planning assumptions. We, they're not easy to, to make, but planning assumption is that, you know, a large proportion, 60, 70, 80% of the people will need to come out at least for some amount of time and get to safe places to go through uh, some stabilization, have some certainty. And as transportation routes are built back in, then come back in to see their properties and to start to make their dispositions for later in life. 
Um, some of the people will never be able to return after they evacuate because the geomorphology of the coastline will be such that portions of towns won't will literally not be there anymore. So, so there's, there's a lot of adjustment to make, to make and, and to have a, and to have identified routes with uh, step-by-step evacuation possibilities makes that, makes that easier for the evacuee. That doesn't make it easier for the evacuation planner (laughs) because we're talking multiple sites along multiple routes. That's very complicated to uh, pre-assess and to ascertain that your, that your plans actually have merit, right? Because you can't go through a, an, a, an actual occurrence. This is a once in a lifetime event. So you, it's really hard to exercise that. So, right. I know we're going a little bit over time, but uh, I just, just kind of want to just bring this point out. I mean, if you take, take a look at uh, Katrina, right. Specifically with New Orleans, uh, they lost at the height was 50% of the population of the city of New Orleans. And then right now they're still 20% down from where they were at that point. So the repatriation portion of it, um, you know, people just left the city and never came back. You know, I'm, I'm sure that has to be taken into account um, for for what you're talking about as well. Oh, oh man, T- Todd, you're so you're you're. I mean, I'm I so agree with you that that by the way is personally for me that's my biggest what I think is the biggest challenge to the scenario we just described that earthquake and tsunami is what happens to these communities when a sizable portion of their workforce and residents can't can't be there anymore for a, for an amount of time do they do they ever come back or or what is the recovery and and i swear the recovery must be decades because for for a, a family who who has kids who need to go to school who'd like to attend church on sundays who would who would who want to live a normal life there's going to be challenges along that near impact um in in this state and so i imagine them say hey i found a job in kentucky we're going to go there for a little while and let's see what happens and then they're just happy in kentucky right do they ever come back i don't know and and the speed of the recovery is absolutely a critical factor in the ability for oregon to come back to where it was before post Cascadia. And, and just like Katrina, as you indicated, that is really, I think one of the features we'll lament post post incident is just what it did to the, to the coast and to the, the, th- the places that we love and we call beautiful. Um, yeah. That's, that's quite a thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, recovery, um, resiliency and robustness and then I'm, I'm adding this new uh aspect to it from uh, nicholas taleb is the idea of anti-fragility and how do we do this and how do we make our communities uh robust like that and uh, yeah. that's a whole nother story for a whole nother time but for, <laughs> <laughs> vincent i appreciate your time today we're at the end of our time um i'd like to how, how do people find you and uh you know how can they you know find the great work that you're doing uh, I appreciate that. We 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 have very long email addresses at our work, but it's Vincent A Arts at DHSOHA dot state dot OR dot US. And you can visit our website, ODHS Office of Resilience and Emergency Management, and, and get to us that way too. Awesome. Vincent, thank you for so much for your time and um uh we'll we'll talk again. Well it was a real pleasure, Todd. Thank you. Absolutely. 
Hey, everybody. Thank you for spending time with us this morning. This is a really important conversation. When you think about one of the things that we do as emergency managers and as communities as whole is making sure that we are having shelter locations for those that are in need uh, for temporary shelter and then maybe even going into long-term shelter um, and emer- well, obviously emergency shelter. Um, so, you know, having that plan in place and what you're using and using the technology, using technology such as DLAN and uh, Buffalo Computer Graphics. And we appreciate their support uh, for this program um, as well. So until next time, everybody, please stay safe and stay hydrated.